Please stand for the reading scripture. We'll be reading in Luke chapter 20, verse 1 to 18. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, and who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let out the tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third... This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Michael and Tiffany. And just a few moments on process that after the service, Michael and Tiffany will be in the lobby in front of the fireplace. They'd love for you to say hello. And then the members of this church will receive a link and Michael's testimony and uh, the voting will be open for the next uh, six days or so. So once again, the leadership of the church would say, would you recognize Michael uh, to call him as as, uh, pastor to our church? Well, we begin by thinking about the fact that the quality of any building is inextricably linked to the quality of the building materials. That I do occasionally go to Home Depot. I know that might surprise you, but sometimes I go. And, you know, I see guys that are eyeing up the two-by-fours, make sure they're nice and straight, not too knotty, and looking at the drywall to make sure that it will be suitable because they know that whatever they're building is dependent upon the quality of the materials. At the end of our passage today, Jesus raises an Old Testament passage that makes us think about buildings. But more than building just buildings, it's talking about our lives. That be careful how you build your life, Jesus is saying, because the kinds of things that you build it upon and build it with are not all equally suitable. They're not of equal quality that there are better things and, in fact, a best thing to build your life on. And it's a renewed call to the church to see the authority of Jesus 
and to build our lives and our very convictions upon him. But there are a number of moves that this passage will make to get us there, and we begin with the rising tensions between Jesus and what we might call, to use this loaded term today, the cultural elites. That Jesus is out preaching, and he runs right up against, right there, verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. There you go, the experts in the religion, the leading people, those who are the acknowledged figureheads of the time. Now, even if you've not known, uh, let's just hypothetically say you didn't know how the Jesus story goes and how this is going to end. If you're just reading up to this point, you're thinking, something's got to give. Uh, this isn't going to go well that the tensions between Jesus and these figures are coming to a point. You can read back 19 and verse 47, the same group, the chief priests and the scribes, they're seeking to destroy Jesus, that they want this guy out. They see him as an imposter, that he's a fraud, that he approximates himself to God in a way that makes them uncomfortable, that he's uh, teetering upon blasphemy, and he's certainly a pretend Messiah, that Jesus has to go, something's got to give. And for the first eight verses, we see a dialogue that this, again, the last week of Jesus' life, he gets asked a lot of questions. And the first point that, that we need to establish, the church needs to establish or revisit is this. Jesus models humility, authority, and courage in perfect balance. One of my great fascinations, I think we'd call it the, the law of unintended consequences. I find the law of unintended consequences fascinating. In other words, somebody sets out to say, this is what I think I'm going to do, and this is what I want to accomplish. But in striving towards that end, what they actually do is the very opposite thing that they intended to do. And I think Jesus' opponents in these first eight verses fall prey in a serious way, in a tragic way for them, to the law of unintended consequences. Let me show you. Uh, what we mean. So first, notice what Jesus is doing. He's preaching the gospel. Jesus says, some say, well, Jesus is a great miracle worker, no doubt, but Jesus fundamentally is a preacher. You might say, well, I come into the church every week, we open the Bible, and there's somebody explaining what the Bible means, talking about Jesus and what it means to believe in him. Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus did, that he preached the word, and this is the setup for the altercation, and they begin by asking Jesus this question, tell us by what authority you do these things. So unintended consequence number one is that it's actually Jesus' opponents who most clearly authenticate his authority. That they see something in the way that he's going about his business, both in the temple, overturning the money changers, calling for just judgment, the way that he speaks, uh, the way that he's able to people gravitate towards him. And it's them who say, how do you have such authority? And why I think this comes into such sharp relief in the nature of our context here is because it was just last week that we saw Jesus as the perfect example of humility that his great regal entrance is not in a chariot or on an impressive, well-bred steed, but on an unridden donkey. And he does that to fulfill Zechariah. And Zechariah says, your king's going to come to you gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey, that Jesus is humble. And instead of taking up the sword, he looks out at Jerusalem and he cries because the people have hardened their hearts. And this is what I want us to see. Jesus, this perfect example of humility and authority. Now, that's a very hard thing to get your mind around. How can somebody be both the perfect example of what we call gentleness, approachability, perhaps? You're drawn in by Jesus. Look at him there. He's not presumptuous. He's not prideful, the universally off-putting thing of pride. Not Jesus. He comes in gentle and lowly and approachable. And yet, in the next context, one who conducts his life with absolute authority, controlling the cosmos, 
predicting everything to come and indeed taking on these figures. So a law of unintended consequences, consequence number one for the scribes and the elders is that they are the ones who point to Jesus's unprecedented practice of authority. Number two, Jesus answers a question with a question, doesn't he? That this day of question, now I want to ask you, a lot of you are in business. How many books have you written, read? There's a section on there with communicating with questions, right? That this is a hot topic, you know, Harvard Business Review, oh, that's good. You got to communicate with questions. Guess who invented that? Jesus, right? He answers a question. You don't need those books. You read the New Testament. Uh, you've got an aggressive questioner. Ask a question about where they're coming from, and that gets everybody thinking and can move the ball down the field. So here's what they say. How do you have such authority? That you have not been formally trained, Jesus. You're, in fact, a carpenter. You're very unimpressive. The people who gather around you are fishermen. By what authority do you speak this way? By what authority do you do them? And Jesus responds with a question to them. He says, you all know John the Baptist, who I think we really could think of as John the preacher. And he says, was John's preaching of no consequence? Was John just like every other preacher? Or was John from God? And then he puts them, the elites, on the defense because they've got a problem. They could say, on the one hand, the truth, which is John did teach with authority. That John was a messenger from God. We saw how he operated, how God worked through him. But the problem with that, right, is if they admit that John was from God, what did John preach about? He preached about Jesus. He said, turn to Jesus. There's the Lamb of God. Will you come to believe in Jesus? So on the one hand, they admit that John was a good preacher and an accurate preacher from God. Then they had to come to Jesus. On the other hand, if they said, well, John, he wasn't that great. He too was a fraud. Then they'd be exposed in front of the crowds who heard John, and they said, well, surely John's ministry, it was very, it was endowed with power, that they would lose credibility with the crowd. So what they do, verse 7, let's put ourselves there. This is a stunning result. That they have a little council, a good uh, bureaucratic element there, right? Washington, D.C., let's have a little meeting. This is a tough one. They come out, verse 7, and what do they say? They answer that they did not know where it came from. Do you realize what a bad conclusion this is for them? This is, to use this, this is your, your core competency. Uh, th this is the area, fellas, that, that you know best. Who, who is a real prophet? Where does authority of God come from? Can, can you guys not even tell a real prophet from a false one? We don't know. Jesus exposes them. So, law of unintended consequences, a consequence number one, they acknowledge that Jesus exercises authority that's on a different scale. Admission number two, that they say, we don't know who's a real prophet or not, doesn't make them look very good. Letter C, then, on your notes, by refusing to confront the truth. So, there's an opportunity here, right, for these chief priests, that they could come and acknowledge what is plainly true, but instead they refuse, they postpone, they can kick the proverbial can down the street. And when we do this, when we're confronted with the decision, once again that great adage, the only bad decision is no decision, here they say we make no decision, we don't know the truth, and they postpone their problems because they won't come 
to the, the conclusion that's right there. So by refusing to co confront the truth, they become further enmeshed and enter deeper tangle. And then lastly, notice this, that in our passage, we have a clear contrast between courage and cowardice. The great lot of people can be lumped in here with the cultural elites. We're afraid. We're afraid to make the right judgment because of what people will think. But there is an example all throughout the passages we've been looking at as great courage, and that is Jesus, who sees full well the controversy that he's in. He sees full well the cross, and he comes in obeying the Father no matter what the cost because it's good and right and true. Friends, maybe I, you come today and you say, well, you know, you're raised in the church and this is all a bit boring for you or whatever you're, you might be thinking. Say, I hope in this little eight verses you can see the magnificence of the Lord Jesus that he takes on the, the full brunt, the full brunt of what, what humanity can kind of generate. You know, the guys that had all the right stuff and in a few quick moments, he exposes them for what they are. Cowards. In a time where we have poor examples of leaders, I hope the church is once again drawn in to the person of Jesus. Humility, authority, courage, calling us home. So Jesus models these things for us. Now, he keeps going, doesn't he? He tells a parable from verse 9, and the parable drives some of these points home. What is a parable? A parable is a short, illustrative story that speaks about how God interacts with his people. And he uses this uh, genre, we could say, many times in his ministry. And in this parable from verse 9, as we said, you can see what quality of the story represents uh, what it represents on a larger scale. So first, the vineyard. Begin with the vineyard. What's the vineyard here? The vineyard is Israel. It is God's chosen people. And you say, well, well, how did you get that? You say, well, who's he talking to? He's talking to the people that knew the Old Testament really well. There's a very famous part in the Old Testament that had I been a bit more thoughtful this week, I would have had it read before Luke 20. But it's in Isaiah chapter 5. See, every Hebrew student would have known Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Because it's there where God compares Israel to a choice vineyard. And what it says is that God prepares the vineyard. He gets all the rocks out of the dirt. He prepares the soil. And he takes great care to, to invest in his people, to raise them up. And so no Jewish thinker ever would have said, well, when we hear a vineyard uh, in this context, it's talking about Israel. So then who's the preparer of the vineyard or here the owner of the vineyard? Say that's God himself. The tenants then are the Israelites and their leaders. That is the people who are put in charge while God is, um, you know, while we could say God is anticipating the end times, that while God uh, is waiting for the denouement of all history. So the tenants are the Israelites who are supposed to be stewarding the vineyard. The fruit of the vineyard would be something like the mission of Israel to reach the ends of the earth. That it wasn't just that Israel was supposed to be inward looking, but rather to go out and that other nations would be provoked in by virtue of how they relate with God. The series of servants here will be the Old Testament prophets who say, will you turn to God and come to him? And of course, the son is going to be Jesus himself. 
So the parable is a story. You say, on one hand, it's a story about a vineyard and tenants and servants. And what does this mean? On the large scale, you can see it's about how God has interacted with his people across history. Now, from this parable, there are four realities that God's people do well to confront, okay? Four realities from the parable of the wicked tenants. Reality number one, that God calls here on Jesus' lips for all of us to be responsible stewards of the endowment that we've been given. So once again, you say, who are we in the parable? Say, we're a lot like the tenants. That God, for a time, has given us the charge of his creation, that we're in his community, that we're his people, we're his church, and we've been called to carry out that mission to the ends of the earth so that others would come to know the true God, that all of the Christian life, I think, can be viewed in terms of a stewardship. This is why, by the way, you'll never hear, if you come for any length of time to Providence, that I, I never talk about a tithe, a word that means tenth. That's a lot of people, what they think, well, I'm a Christian, you know, I give a tenth of my money to say, actually, it's way bigger than that. It's that we're to be stewards of the entire charge that God has given us in the mission that we're supposed to be on. That our minds and our bodies, the way that we use our tongues, yes, our pocketbook, our homes, that all that we have should be put forth to drive the mission of God so that we're not these tenants that are out to lunch, so to speak. So Jesus calls here for the people entrusted with God's mission to fulfill that mission in the time that we have to be the church. Okay, secondly, this part a bit scarier. What happens to these tenants very quickly is that they fail to discharge their duty. And I'd put it this way, how quickly, reality number two, how quickly the human heart neglects responsibility, enjoys personal indulgence, and ignores God. That the power of sin in this world is very strong, and to see the temptation that all of us have each and every day to be tugged away from the mission of God towards myself. I think this is the, the struggle in this parable, that as you'd be reading, you'd say, well, I'd never be like those tenants. I mean, they, they, beat, up these, they beat up these servants. They, you know, uh, they end up killing somebody. That would never be me. Rather, what I'd encourage us to do is say, well, actually, with the right circumstances, that could be me. How so? Because of the tendencies in my own heart to look out for myself. You know, I think it was Solzhenitsyn, uh, the Russian dissident who spent time in the gulag. You know, he said, you know, people often think of good and evil in, uh, ge you know, geopolitical terms or in terms of, you know, factions. He says, no, that good and evil runs right down every human heart to see that my own possibility of turning my own way and neglecting God and turning towards myself and chasing after material. Another way to think about this, uh, so some of us listen to, if, if you've not, you know, I, I've been listening to, to Jordan Peterson, who's a very thought-provoking Canadian psychologist. And um, I don't believe, he's a Christian, I don't really know, but he's close, but he's a very keen thinker. And what he says is, my interest in psychology began with the Nazi prison guards who were just kind of doing their normal duty. I mean, not, not Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels and people like that, but your, your typical German person that's guarding the gate. What happened to that guy? 
Um, was there a particular uh, pocket of evil in that time in that place? Or was it that if you give the person kind of caught up in the wrong kind of system, that they end up doing very terrible things? And I say that's pretty close, I think, to the truth. To say that all of us are bent, that we come into this world rebelling against God. It's not, well, that's those bad people over there, but me, I'm a pretty good guy. Rather to see the proclivities of my own heart to turn to myself. I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe one more, see if this one uh, relates a bit better. It was my junior varsity basketball coach, Dave Barger, who taught me this. Boys, you're one bad decision away from ruining your life. And I was thankful to have a basketball coach that not only taught us basketball, but said things like that, because I said, that's true. That all of us in this room, you got a week ahead. There are decisions that we can make. And you say, one of those, sometimes those decisions will completely alter the trajectory of your life. And we talk about the truth here, but maybe there's somebody in the room, you know, you've got a business trip tomorrow. And you're quite excited about that business trip because it might be an opportunity for you to, you know, dabble in some extracurriculars. So you think about how that would change your life. Others in the room say, well, you know, pornography is a pretty big industry and a lot of people do it. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll try it next time I'm alone. Others in the room, you've overcome a great addiction in your life been a great triumph and your life's been set straight and you know you got a little voice inside you say well you know one drink it won't hurt say little tiny decisions seemingly will tilt your life in a direction that you don't want to go and I bring this out because this is a, a time-honored truth of scripture to say see the fragility of the human heart to see our vulnerability and our weakness to see if I'm put in the wrong kind of a domain, my tendency to, again, like these tenants to say, God, he's not on my mind. What I'm here for is verse 14. Let's, let's live for ourselves. Let's get our own inheritance. Could I be there? So point one, God's people are called the responsible stewardship of God's created order, discharging his gospel with all the faculties we've been given. Reality number two, that each one of us, our heart, can neglect that responsibility and turn our own way, and we do well to see our great need. What's that song we just sang? I'm always very careful to sing that song. You know, there are some, some songs, if you really dwell on them, you say, should I be singing this? I need thee every hour. We just sang it 10 minutes ago, whatever, 15. Have I been talking long? Uh, 10, 15 minutes ago, you know, I need you every hour. Say, why would a Christian sing that? Why would we say, I need you every hour, God? Because we must realize our own vulnerability. Okay, third reality. God has dealt patiently with us rebels. Let's see what happens. The tenants are not doing their task. They're too busy doing their own thing, looking after themselves. So verse 10, the owner of the vineyard sends a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, he sent another servant. But they also beat him up and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, and he sent yet a third servant. This one also they wounded and cast out. And these servants, no doubt, to the listeners are the prophets. Here's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. Hey, everybody, there's a God. He's real, that he wants to save you. Will you come into his people? Will you listen to his voice? Will you trust him? Come, only for the people to say, no, we don't need that. 
You know, I think about whenever, how, how fortunate to live in the time we do when I think about some of these old preachers. You know, I think about Noah, who interestingly, I think it's in Peter, Noah is called a preacher. And Noah in his time says, hey, God is going to judge us for neglecting him and for being such ruthless people, but there's a chance to repent and be saved. Would anyone who hears this proclamation put your trust in God and come? No, his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws, tough ministry. Isaiah, evidently, that his ministry was from the outset, God said, you're not really going to be numerically successful, but rather that I've given you this long ministry, Isaiah, so that my just judgment might be put on display. And so the fact that the, the obvious resistance to the proclamation of God might be made manifest to everybody who reads this and, and thinks about this. So God sends these three servants. Now, it, it, I read this and I'm thinking like, well, who would do that? I mean, after you get one result and two results, you're going to really send a third into there? It's stressing the merciful pleading of God to the point where God then says, do I have a further expression of my love? Do I have anything else I could do to demonstrate how much I care about these people who've treated me in my vineyard so ruthlessly? What do I have? Well, I've got my only son. I'm going to send my son because then they'll know that I'm serious. They send the son and they kill him, right? Of course, reference to Jesus who's just been rejected. Now, this, what I've been saying, God patiently provides a means for humans to come to him. I, I sometimes struggle. I mean, this is much more to the, I think, the way the culture talks about it. You know, Bertrand Russell, the mathematician and atheist, he was once asked in an interview, they said, well, Bertrand, if you go, you know, and you find yourself one day at the, the judgment seat of God, what would you say to him? And he said three words, not enough evidence. And I, I have to ask, is that actually true? Is that, is that, the, is that the story? See, I don't think it's a lack of evidence. I actually think it's the willful rejection of the human heart to God. There is the open, no doubt Bertrand Russell had his Bible, that he had access to many Bibles, that he had heard what God did through Jesus. He knew about the prophets, and it wasn't that God didn't speak to him or give him plainly what was good and right and true and how you come to terms on God through Jesus. It wasn't an information issue or an evidence issue. It was, I'm not doing that. And I wonder today, too, maybe a bit different, but read an article in the National Review. You can read many articles on this. The nuns, uh, the, the people who profess no religion, and they struggle a lot with the problem of suffering, no doubt a real one. But a, a significant subset kind of says, well, b believing in God is just, just really hard to get my mind around that, to which the church says, but God put forth Jesus into history. And there's a clear proclamation of what he's done. Will you give your life to him? So God, may the church never say, well, you know, God is fickle and vindictive and he just, you know, kind of say, no, God has demonstrated profound patience, such mercy in the servants of the prophets and in his son. The real question is whether I'm going to say, no, thanks, I'm going to do it my own or rather to see what's at stake here. Fourthly, so again, four realities of the parable of the wicked tenants. One, we're all called the responsible stewardship of the, of the gospel which we've been given. 
Secondly, there's something in me that doesn't want to do that. There's a, a sinful rebellion in me that I need to be on guard with, I need to be on guard about. That's why I need songs like, I need you, God, every hour so that I don't turn my own way. Third, that God has dealt patiently with sinners and made it very clear how a person gets right with God by coming through Jesus. Fourthly, and seriously, there'll be a day when all this shakes out with finality. This last part. So Jesus says, what, would, what do you think is going to happen after the owner finds out that, yes, his servants are destroyed and his son, too, is killed? And they threw him out of the vineyard. They killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. They couldn't get their heads around this. How could it be that the, the vineyard of Israel could be given to outsiders? It mustn't be. But then this, verse 17, look at little detail in the text so crucial, but Jesus looked directly at them. You see those little words? You know this as a parent. The boys sometimes need me to grab those shoulders, and I lock eyes with them. Boys, I'm done playing around. You don't talk to your mom that way. Jesus is saying, guys, the stone the builders rejected God's made the chief cornerstone, and there'll be a day of reckoning for all those, whatever decision you make. So the point number four, the reality is that there's a time where everyone's going to give an account, that Jesus then goes to Psalm 118, which no doubt would have been on their minds because they just quoted it at the triumphal entry, and what the, to bring us full circle to the building metaphor, is he compares himself to the stone that the builders rejected that God's used to become a chief cornerstone. It's a bit like this. You're building a house, and you got an odd-shaped stone. And you chuck it aside, say, nobody's going to build anything with this. And then you say, well, actually, that's become the cornerstone of a great edifice. That's exactly what's at stake here. Jesus, to them, must have been an incredibly odd-shaped stone the carpenter, with those guys, with what we're going to do to him? How could it be? No thanks, Jesus. To which God says, no, you've ignored him. And all of life, all of reality is built on him. And friends, don't miss 18, right? Sometimes I think people think that I wake up in the morning and they say, well, what's Shaw going to come up with today? You know, is today going to be like a fluffy message or a serious? And say, no, just explain what the Bible says. Verse 18, Jesus is the stone that most people reject because it means coming to him and he means turning our lives over to him. So we tend to reject Jesus, but God makes him the foundation of our lives and of all the cosmos. Verse 18, then everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That is for some that the claims of Jesus are just too much that they stumble and at the end say, not going to go well. For others in the rebellion, that, that, knowledge, that idea of him crushing us, I think, is the judgment and the penalty for rejecting so plain a claim. Uh, so plain is Jesus' proclamation about what he wants. So for the church, we end on a word of hope that this uh, quotation of Psalm 118 was prevalent in the early church. 
And in 1 Peter 2, a passage that I love to preach at weddings, it says, all those who come to Jesus and see him as the cornerstone, anyone who believes in him, who receives him, who builds their life on him, who, who serves him, that person will never be put to shame. Say, what refreshing words. Say, I live for myself, do my own thing, plunder others. It's a tough way to go. Alternatively, to see the Lord Jesus, a man of humility and authority and courage, to be drawn in by his personhood, to see how patient God has been, to say, I want to serve you, to say that person will be not only used mightily here now, but will be victorious in the end. So I'll invite Jim and the team up and we'll pray. Loving Father, we thank you for this parable, hard-hitting parable, um, that may we see before we condemn others how maybe there's a lot of similarity with these tenants, that we've been given a stewardship, and there's a lot within me that wants to neglect my responsibility to turn to myself to see that I'm one bad decision away from really ruining my life and hurting a lot of people. Lord, I'm fragile and I'm weak, and I do need you every hour. Lord, for others who've maybe been say, well, you know, is it really this serious? I mean, this is quite, quite heavy to say, well, what, what do we make of this? What do we make of Jesus looking directly at people and saying, this is the way it is, that those who reject Jesus, it doesn't end well. So to receive him and to build our lives upon him. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that we have great confidence that all those in Christ will not be put to shame, that this is the best of all lives to live. So we commit ourselves to you. Help us to digest this for Christ's sake. Amen.